Okay, we have had our weekly check-in to make sure the microphone's working. It's a great microphone. It's the best one I've ever used. We just can't figure it out. It's, it's user error. You know, it would be uh, very unfeeling to just kind of uh, pass through without saying something. And I want to say something about what happened just a couple of moments ago because I know we all uh, witnessed what took place. I want to help you perhaps think about this in a way that maybe that you have not. Number one, I, if you would, join me in thanking God in your hearts for all the medical professionals that make up this congregation. Not only that they exist here, but that there are so many that are willing. In fact, there would have been others in addition that could have responded, but they handled it in a very kind, caring, and efficient way uh, in response to the great need that existed. Uh, and so I hope that we will thank God. It's terrible for a health problem to occur anywhere, but I'm grateful that when it happens uh, in the midst of worship that we have so many who not only can, but who want to help. And, and related to that, parents, it may be a great thing for you to point out for your children. One of the blessings of being a part of the body of Christ is how compassionate Christians are. How loving that they are to help those, maybe those that they don't even know, very well in order to uh, meet the needs that exist when they arise, even when they were not anticipated. How wonderful God's people are. And we saw that on display just a moment ago. You know, when you read the book of Mark, as was studied in the class on Wednesday night in the last quarter, it is an enriching book. You begin to think about all that is encountered when you read through that gospel, the characteristics of the book, and some of the better known passages. In Mark chapter 8, when Peter is among the apostles, when they're asked, who do men say that I am? And it's at the heart of the book of Mark when Mark says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or and you look in Mark 10 and verse 45 where Mark says, For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Or perhaps when we're discussing the subject of salvation in Mark 16 and verse 16, one of the more recognizable verses of the book, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be condemned. It's a great enriching book as we have just seen. Have you ever thought about the man that is behind that book, the one that wrote that gospel? When we go to examine him and see him in scripture, we don't see his name. We see a title over the gospel, but when you begin to study in the book itself, you don't see him naming himself. He gets right down to the business of that gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is no internal evidence that would suggest to us firmly that Mark was the writer. And yet the early church is unanimous in its witness including Papias, a man who probably heard apostolic preaching, and Irenaeus and Origen, and all the early church fathers said without a doubt that the one who wrote this gospel was Mark. In fact, the Mark that we read about in Scripture is the one that is identified for us as John Mark. The one we read about in the book of Acts, and we read about several times in the epistles. And when we begin to examine Mark, the Mark that we read about in Scripture, the man who was behind the writing of this book, we see that he was the product of so many great things. He was the product of great parenting. When you 
first are introduced to John Mark, it's in Mark chapter, or rather Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. James has been beheaded. And Herod saw how much it pleased the Jews. And so he decided he was going to try to do the same thing to Peter, the man who had first preached the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And so Peter's in prison. And so the saints are collecting their resources, the greatest resource of all, of prayer. And they're meeting together in the home of John Mark's mother. What an impression that she must have made on him, being a leader of the church. He was the product of great parenting. He was also the product of great influence. I want you to think about something that we learn about Mark that's kind of unique to him. First of all, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10 tells us that John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. And so when we read about Barnabas, Barnabas is introduced to us in Acts chapter 4 as the man whose name literally, his nickname was the son of encouragement. He was a man who had a piece of property and he sold it and he gave all the proceeds of that to help the needy saints in Jerusalem. He was the great encourager. When Saul of Tarsus becomes a Christian and the saints at Damascus are fearful of him, it's Barnabas that helps him to get an introduction with the saints. And so that's John Mark's cousin. Can you imagine having a cousin who had that kind of an impact on the church? But then the very first mission trip that ever occurred had three names at the head of the list. It was Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. He is a forerunner of all of those who have gone through the sacrifice and struggle to take the gospel to a new place. And so he was the product not only of great parenting but of great influence. And he was also, as akin to that, uh, uh, the product of great opportunity. He went on the first missionary journey. Oh, and by the way, when we talk about influences, it wasn't just Barnabas and Paul. There was also Peter. At the end of his first letter, he calls Mark my spiritual son. Who else do we know who was close to Paul and Peter? And then Barnabas to boot. But he was the product of great opportunity because he went on the very first missionary trip that there ever was. And yet somewhere along the way, in addition to having the parenting and the influence and the opportunity, he had time to write one of four inspired accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. And what's remarkable about him is that apart from these things, he seems like a very ordinary disciple. I believe that most of what's done for good in the body of Christ over time is done by average, ordinary members of the church. And so I think as we get to know Mark better, we come to learn something about ourselves. The lesson this morning is very simple in its design. I want us to look at three things concerning Mark the man, the man behind the gospel that enriched our lives as we studied it in this last quarter. The first thing I want us to notice is Mark's personal life. In order for us to understand something about Mark's personal life, what we know about him, our primary source is the Bible. There are nine passages of Scripture where we read something about John Mark. Now, in addition to that, I want us to look at this complex, diverse man. And we're going to see some of what early church fathers and early church uh, uh, scholarship says about Mark the man. But the foundation for all of this... It's what the scriptures say. 
In Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, he enters into the sacred record as the son of this influential woman that we mentioned, John Mark. His mother is the one who hosted the church. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 25, Paul and Barnabas have fulfilled this mission for the church and they take along with them John, whose surname is Mark. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 5, we read about uh, Paul and Barnabas at Salamis and they're preaching in the synagogue of the Jews and they have a helper named John. That's this same John Mark. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, we read that Paul and his companions leave Paphos and they come to Perga of Pamphylia. And it says that John Mark left them and departed and went to Jerusalem. The next time we see him is in the passage that Todd read to us so well a moment ago in Acts chapter 15 verse 37 through 39. It's time to go on another missionary journey. And so in order to do that, Barnabas is the one, the ever the encourager, who says, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, we should not take him because he departed from us and did not go with us to the work. And there arose this sharp contention between them such that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark with him to Cyprus. That's all we see about him in the book of Acts. We read about him again from the pen of Paul and from the pen of Peter before inspiration closes its look at Mark the man. We see in Colossians 4 and verse 10 that Paul gives instruction to the church at Colossae encouraging them if Mark were to come to welcome him And then in Philemon, verse 24, he's very simply referred to as Mark, my fellow worker. And then in 2 Timothy, chapter 4, in verse 11, the apostle Paul is giving instruction to Timothy, and he says, and bring with you, if you can, John Mark, for he is useful to me for service. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, the Apostle Peter sends greetings from those of Babylon and those of like precious faith who have been saved. And he says, I also send greetings from my son, Mark. Now when you begin to read about this very unsung and unusual character in the New Testament, there are some holes would like to know more about and maybe there are some partial answers and it seems like people like to fill in gaps in Mark's life. One of the first things that causes us to scratch our head is the fact that his name is John Mark. If you don't know this, this is very unusual. That first name, John, is a distinctly Hebrew name. It's a Jewish name. Just by evidence of all the other Johns that we read about in the New Testament. And so there's certainly a Jewish heritage there. But that middle name, that given name, is the name Mark. It's a Greek and a Latin name. And it means strong hammer. And so the the question is, what's up with this multi-ethnic identity? Perhaps he's like Timothy and he has parents of mixed heritage. Then there's the question about John Mark's father. Not only what was his religious background, but where is he? We draw the conclusion that he was probably dead, given first century culture, and the fact that when we read about him first in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, he is a, his house is associated with his mother and not with his father. Presumably, if Mark's father had been alive, it would have been his house, but it's her house. And then there's another thing for us to observe with regard to how well off they might have been. There is every reason for us to think 
that uh, John Mark grew up in relative wealth. The fact that the church was large or her house was large enough for the church to meet there says something. And then in beyond that, a house with a gate belonged to the wealthy elite of society. And the fact that that woman Rhoda is a servant all points to the fact or the idea that Mark very well could have been a person of privilege. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26 that not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble are called, but there were exceptions to that, and we know it. And maybe Mark was one of those who had possessions and position and power. And what's remarkable is that despite that wealth, he did not let it stand between him and being a servant of the Lord or being even known as a servant. You know, Paul gives instructions in 1 Timothy 6, 17, not to be conceited or to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but in God who gives all things richly to enjoy. Apparently some took that instruction to heart. And Mark would maybe point us with his life to that very thought that we ourselves, because here in America we are all those people of privilege, we are all those people of 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19, who have privilege who have possessions that we are to store up for a foundation for the life which is to come. We should never be like those who are rich toward ourselves and not rich toward God. Luke 12 and verse 20. But here's the point. Was Mark wealthy or not? We cannot dogmatically say. We begin to look into Mark and to try to examine more about what we know about him personally. Many have been the Bible student that have tried to connect him to that unnamed disciple. One of the most curious passages in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 51, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, there's this young man. And and when they try to grab him, he leaves his cloak and he runs away naked. Many have tried to say that was John Mark, that John Mark's doing what John often does. In his gospel, when he refers to himself, he refers to himself in the third person, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that maybe Mark is giving a nod to himself in this gospel by saying that he was the young man. But we just don't know. And we won't on this side of time. One other thing to point out is that the early church fathers, almost universally, in the first few centuries of time, Mark was known as the stump-fingered one. And many have been the theories about that. One theory is that he had the shortest of the Gospels. Not much of an introduction, not much of a conclusion. Shorter certainly than the other three Gospels and so stump-fingered in that regard. Some have even suggested that he cut off his thumbs to keep from Levitical service. Others still say that he had some kind of congenital uh, problem, some birth defect in his his hands or his fingers or his thumbs. Others say that he had some kind of uh, unusually small hands for the size of his body. But which of these, if any of these is true, we don't know. So often we like to try to meander into that territory. Maybe you're saying, Neil, why have you spent so much time talking about that here? We like those personal details. And there are some hints in scriptures about some of this. But the man Mark is such a remarkable person, even in his ordinary nature, that we learn so much from him. There is what we see about him personally. But I want to notice second something about Mark's public life. We begin to see what scripture does say about him. It helps us as we try to live the Christian life. I firmly believe this. 
The first thing that we find about him, and there's four of these, is that he was a helper. When we read about him in Acts chapter 13 and verse 5, you have Barnabas and you have Paul, and then it talks about how John, whose surname Mark, was a helper to them. And the word that is used there means an administrative assistant. One who is a subordinate. So there, this word, when it was typically used in the early church, was, or in that period of time, referred to several things. Maybe it was that he was a logistics manager. Or he was a business manager. Maybe he arrived, arranged for the food and for the lodging. Many times, these helper, that word was somebody who was a courier who carried letters. And oftentimes, they were exhorters. They would get up behind those main speakers and they would give words of encouragement after that. Whatever it was, the title for Mark was that he was a helper. Now, it could have been, though it's not likely, that he had already written his gospel. And if he had written his gospel, how helpful would it have been after Paul and Barnabas had preached and taught for him to get up and to talk about the life of Jesus throughout the Gentile world? Or, as is more likely... He wrote his gospel later. Can you imagine having not only the movement of the Holy Spirit to bear you along in writing, but hearing the stories of Paul and Barnabas and later of Peter to help to fuel the details of of that book? What I want to point point out to you is that Mark is known to us in Scripture as somebody who helped. Where did that tendency come from? You know, when Paul writes his last letter in 2 Timothy... In chapter 1 and verse 5, he he commends Timothy. He says, When I consider the sincere faith that is in you, that first dwelled in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am convinced it is also in you, where did uh, Timothy learn how to have faith? He learned it in his home. And what about the case of John Mark? In the same letter, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, Please bring John Mark with you, for he is useful to me for service. Did he learn that from his mother, who opened up her home? You think about what's involved in hospitality. All the work you do to prepare for that. And then you have people in your home, and all the cleanup that happens after that. You know... When I think about the fact that our boys are all fully grown, they're all married, they're starting to have children, I pray every day that the values that we try to instill in them have stuck. But let me say this, it's not whatever they will ever say about me or say to me that will matter. It's what they say with their lives. Isn't that how we feel in our homes? We want the values that we've tried to pass along to live on in our children. It seems that John Mark's mother did that very thing because the bottom line is it's hard to think about Mark without thinking about the helper that he was. A second thing about his public life is that he was a missionary. I mean, he was right there at the very beginning. In Acts 13, uh, 12 through 15, we read about him among the first missionaries. And he wasn't a missionary in the same way that Paul and Barnabas were. They were separated out by the Holy Spirit to do that work. But here's... Mark, who comes along, and whatever he does, maybe we say it doesn't seem like it was much, but it was enough that when he left the field, it aggravated Paul. He felt like that there was a hole, a gap that was left. And whatever happens in Mark's life, and we'll say more about that in a moment, he immediately comes back and he joins with his cousin Barnabas, and they go to Cyprus, and they do mission work there. 
Alexandria of Egypt says that it is, was commonly thought that Mark, in this intervening period of time, went down to Alexandria, Egypt, and he served as the evangelist there. But then later on you read about Paul's writing in Colossians 4.10 and he says that he hopes that Mark will come to Colossae, which was in what's modern day Turkey. And then you, you see in Philemon 24 and in 1 Peter 5.13, it seems very clearly that he goes to Rome, Italy. So if you think in terms of how well traveled he was, maybe he went more places preaching the gospel than just about anybody in the first century. He started at Antioch of Syria and went north in the southeast uh, part of the Mediterranean. He goes up to um, uh, Ephesus in the northeast part of the Mediterranean. He finds himself in Africa, in Egypt, down in the south of the Mediterranean, and then ultimately up in the northwest part of there, all taking the gospel. You know, I try to think about a modern-day example of that, one of my friends, I don't know if David went to school with him, but Keith Kasarjan, probably more than anybody living today, has gone more places for the purpose of preaching the gospel. I asked him how many nations he had been to just in mission work, and that number is over 50. I think, well, how incredible that is, but you know what? All he has to do is get on an airplane, and it will take him across the world in just a few hours. John Mark did all of this without the benefits of modern transportation. When I look at the public life of Mark, I see a man with so much passion and so much interest in the Word of God that he goes to great sacrifices to go all over the known world preaching the gospel. Very briefly, we'll notice that he was a fellow worker. In Philemon verse 24, Paul points to him and he says just in passing that Mark is my fellow worker, a compound word that speaks of the unity that he was a part of and the productivity. He worked well with others, and he was a worker. There's not a finer thing that we can say about anybody. But then also we find that he was a writer. Those in the early church say that perhaps he was the authentic voice and the scribe for Peter, and that he was very much influenced by him. And if you wanted to know what Peter preached like, just read the Gospel of Mark. Some say that Peter stood over his shoulder. Others say that he wrote after his death. But when we examine the book of Mark, one of those inspired accounts of the life of Christ, it is a phenomenal book. It is a book that is filled with industry. Look at all the active words in the book, like see and do and hear and make and power. It is also a book of instruction wherein Mark shows us how to be a follower of Jesus. It's at the heart of the book in Mark chapter 8. It is a, a book about the incarnation, our God coming in the flesh, that even the demons confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. Mark faithfully writes that. It's a book of immediacy, as he uses the word by my count 43 times immediately. And it's a book of identity where he points out for us that Jesus is the Christ. But what's so remarkable is that this remarkable book was written by a man who's so otherwise ordinary. And that leads me to his spiritual life. The last thing that we notice about Mark is his spiritual life. Before we get there, a lady named Simone Sibbery, I read about her in the London Mail, and she said this, she said, I cease caring for dogs 
when they stopped being puppies. It was a really eye-opening article. She had four dogs in four years. And she said, when the dog gets too loud or when the dog starts shedding, I just get rid of them then. She likes the cute and the cuddly, but she doesn't like the long-term commitment. You know, some people reduce John Mark to that. A man who when the heat was on, when things got difficult, that he abandoned the work and he went back home perhaps to his mother. That's not a fair representation. When we get to his spiritual life, this ordinary disciple teaches us a few things that can help us. First of all, Mark was a behind-the-scenes disciple. When you read about him, you never read about him preaching in any context. You never see John Mark engaging in debate at all. We don't even read about him studying with any group, large or small. Every time we read about him, he's in some subordinate capacity. Those who knew his life said that he was gifted with good but not extraordinary gifts. But most of the work in the world is accomplished by people like this. When you read about him, yes, he's a fellow worker, but what did that work involve? So far as we know, no public ministry, but behind-the-scenes work. You know, we, we all appreciate the McGuire's and the honey that they make, and I really don't know. I was going to ask about what the case is with CCD, Colony Collapse Disorder. Maybe you've heard about that. I know that they have. There was an endemic problem in our nation for about a decade where uh, worker honeybees were disappearing. And scientists in Northern California think that they found out the reason why. That there was a parasitic fly that invaded the bodies of those worker bees and it agitated them and it made them leave the hive. There was a serious concern for a few years that we were going to lose the ability to have honey anymore and what a great ecological problem that was going to be. I think about the work of the average congregation. And certainly Lehman is exceptional. It's not average. But in this sense we could say that much of what's done is done by the average behind the scenes worker. And so often if we don't say to those behind the scenes workers, we see you and we need you. Perhaps it might be easy for you to get discouraged and to give up and to think my work's not needed. And perhaps if I just kind of fade back or if I disappear... Nobody will know. If you're discouraged, if you don't feel appreciated, let me say we do care and we are concerned and we do appreciate all that you do. I read about a man by the name of George Aldridge. Very unusual fellow, especially back during the days of the space shuttle program. He's still, so far as I know, doing his work at White Sands Laboratory in New Mexico. He wasn't a rocket scientist. He's not an aeronautic engineer. His title at White Sands is Chief Sniffer. Now the work that he does may sound like government dollars at waste, but it's not. He has such a sense of smell that he can pick up on odors. And odors that are noxious and maybe even dangerous to those astronauts going out into space. And that may not sound like a big deal unless you're going to be in a very small, confined space with a horrific and odiferous smell that can just overwhelm you. Does he have an important job? I think so. Is it glamorous? Maybe not. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 18 that God has arranged the body the way he wants it. It's, it's one body but many members. 
And all of those members are important. That the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. That the head cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. God needs more and more behind-the-scenes disciples because when we don't have those, then bulletin boards don't get decorated. The Lord's Supper does not get prepared. New Christians and new members don't get welcomed. The sick and the shut-in don't get visited. Visits aren't made. Cards aren't sent. People aren't encouraged. So much of what makes the church strong is done by the behind-the-scenes disciple. And when I look at John Mark, he is such a a, a Christian. He's behind the scenes. There's a second thing that I think we learned from him, and that is that John Mark was an overcoming disciple. Hey, before we started this lesson, if you knew something about John Mark, was it that he left Paul and Barnabas to go back home to Jerusalem? That's a terrible place to end the story. Because almost immediately, he sets to make things right. He goes with Barnabas to Cyprus, and he does mission work. And everything that we read about him subsequent to that shows him an active, vital, and working part of the body of Christ. And it it really does point out a very important lesson that all of us have got to remind ourselves. On the road to Christian growth, all of us are going to stumble. We're going to misfire. We're going to disappoint. We're going to hurt others. And that's true of each and every one of us. That's because serving Christ is not a sinless expedition. And I learned that from a remarkable character in the New Testament. John... John the Apostle, the one who carries Peter into the place where the high priest's court is, when all the disciples have forsaken and fled, here's John who is bold enough to go close to Jesus. In fact, when all the others are running away, there's only one apostle at the foot of the cross with the women, and that's John. John could rightfully be called the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was so um, of such a character that Jesus hanging on the cross could say, can you take care of my mother for the rest of her life? John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we are lie and the truth is not in us. My little children, I write these things to you that we sin not. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father Christ Jesus, the righteous. John, this great character, wraps himself up in that. And it's a reminder to me, when I've been disappointed by a brother and sister in Christ... Not to hold them hostage to their past. Not to make them a slave of the things that they may have done that disappointed. Now did John Mark hurt Paul? Absolutely. He uses a very strong word. In Acts chapter 15 he says that he departed. You know that word there literally means apostasy. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1. He says that in the latter day some shall depart from the faith. Did he leave Christ? Maybe. Or maybe he just let his brethren down. John Mark reminds me not to hold people captive to what they used to be, but to realize people grow and they change. But then there's the third lesson, and that is that he was a productive and dependable disciple. When you read about John Mark, the more you read about him, the longer his life goes on, 
the greater a servant that he is. He goes from just a mama's boy in Acts 12 to a deserter in Acts 13 to one who the longer he serves in Christ, the more fruitful he is. It's a challenge to me. Am I being transformed? The longer that I'm a Christian, am I looking more like Christ? Surely I will be growing to such a point that I can be more dependent upon the longer I'm in Christ. John Mark teaches that. So what happened to John Mark? You know, when it comes to that, there are a lot of different answers given there too. Some would say that he died in the persecution of Nero. Josephus says in the eighth year of Nero's reign. There are others who say that he died at a much later date. That he died at a point after which he was able to write the gospel and he was able to encourage the church at Rome who had known Nero's savagery and who had to be encouraged to live the Christian life, whether it was difficult or easy. Individuals would point to the fact that John Mark would have been by Peter's side and by Paul's side when they were near the end of their life, lives that they gave up for sharing the gospel. When I look at John Mark, Alfred Plummer is probably right when he says, where, when, and how John Mark died, we don't know. What we do know is the legacy that he left. The legacy is of one of more than what we usually think. On December 17, 1903, Orville and Wilbur Wright sent a telegram back to their hometown in Dayton, Ohio, where they were popular bicycle merchants. One of the brothers sent off a telegram to his sister in which he said, sustained flight for 59 seconds should be home for Christmas. They were reporting on the first airplane flight. Catherine was excited and she rushed the telegram to the local newspaper and the editors also saw that this was a newsworthy story. And so they had a, a little blurb on the back page that said, local bicycle merchants to be home for Christmas. Did they miss the bigger story? I think they did. What's the bigger story with John Mark? It's not of a disciple who deserted Paul and Barnabas in their hour of trial. It's of a man who grew in his faith and in his service. A man who has given us one of the windows into the life of Jesus Christ. One who shows us that I could, if I don't preach... If I don't teach, if I don't serve as an elder or a deacon, if I'm a faithful servant of God, my work will prove much more valuable than I think. And that I can grow and I can move beyond the weaknesses and the struggles of the past. And that I should be growing more productive in Christ every day. Thank God that we read about this unsung hero, John Mark, in the Bible. What it tells me is, is it's not what I have done, it's what I am doing and will do for Christ that matters most to Him. May I encourage you in that way? It doesn't matter how many times you have resisted the invitation of Christ and have failed to make the decision to become a child of God. Not that you have to do it publicly in these assemblies, but whatever you've done to say no in the past, why not say yes to Him? You'll be judged ultimately by what you do with Jesus, not what you've done. If you're ready, though, to make that decision, we're going to sing a song to encourage you to act on your faith in Christ, to repent and be baptized, to have those sins washed away. It also may be that you feel that your worth is is missed. Please 
understand how important you are to God, how important you are to us. Maybe you've struggled to find your purpose in the body of Christ. Maybe you need prayers for strength and trying to do better and living the Christian life. Maybe you're at that place where you have departed from Him and you need to come back home. If that's the need that you have, and we can help you, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?